Welcome back to Ghostly Talk. This is Scott L. This is Amber. I just love the Disney look you gave me. <laughs> fun, fun, fun. I'm keeping it positive. Because we're hugging trees on this episode. Lots we, of them. Hey, if yeah, you we are, have... We are, yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of sitting here just in awe of who we, we talked to tonight. I really am. I'm just... Uh, this was super cool. I, I, I just don't feel smart enough sometimes no. to be doing this show and talk to some of the people we talk to. And That's I, I, why I, I spend very... the whole day researching and watching videos and reading their books because I, w- I don't want to just be like, duh. So you no, study no. trees. But even then, it's like... I still feel stupid, so I, I know what you mean. I still feel stupid. I mean, like, you know, I, just to talk to some but of these people. I they've mean, spent brilliant. a long time. He's a professor, so they spent a long time. Anyway, um, do you have a favorite... If, okay, do you have a favorite tree? The one in our backyard. The apple tree? That apple tree is... I love that tree. Yeah, that is... I do love that tree. That tree is You know, really I think... Awesome. I looked up I got, how I want to do some... I Actually, I was thinking... It's funny that we were... Well, I think I was thinking about that this morning when I was showering. Uh I actually have to go and look at that tree and do some maintenance because the trunk is starting to get it, – it could fall over. I'm kind of scared of that. No, I think that tree's pretty sturdy. Uh, we're talking about our Granny Smith apple tree in the backyard that I, gives us a bounty every couple of years. Yeah, I I looked up how to measure apple trees and or like kind of gauge the age, and I think it's around 80 years old. Yeah. A, That's my guesstimate. It's a very, very old tree. Unfortunately, we've lost branches on it over the years because the apples were so heavy. Yeah, they t- they Just took down a couple. That that one took it a down. few years ago took down a massive limb that we chopped up and burned. Because what else are you going to do with that? I think every everyone loves trees. Like yeah, they do. Besides, if you live in my my neighborhood, I grew up in, we have all oak. People don't love oak. Like Why? they not for cleanup. They're like the worst tree in the world to have in your yard. Yeah, you they're know, dirty in the fall and they're dirty in the spring. It's part of the game, though. It I is. Mean, it's it, just it, part of it. But it's just part of the game, and you know, and that's what I think we talked. Some of the ideas we presented here. I'm really sick of humans putting themselves at the center of things. And I mean, who am I? I'm not a prophet. I'm not anybody. You know, we just but, started but, talking about trees, but did we mention who we talked to yet? We're going to mention that in a second. We're going to mention <laughs> okay, that Okay, so in a right second. now we're just talking about Cause, trees. Because I'm trying to work my way okay. up to that because I keep screwing up his okay. name. And I want to <laughs> okay. try to work my way up to it so I get it right. Okay. Uh, so, because I took a real, I took a tongue lashing after we were done <laughs> talking to this gentleman. Uh, but I... Uh, not from a, him. So was I, not from him. No, he was a <laughs> perfect, gem, wonderful man. Uh, but I, I, there is this idea, and we we talked about that, and I'm kind of just it's it's what I think the problem is, is just that is that I think we're really like like that idea, and I'm not putting you down, Amber, but it's like oh, nobody likes oh, oh I mean I shouldn't do that voice for you. Mm, that's my voice. Maybe somebody shouldn't. I I, I don't really. Oh, no, I have, no, 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 The no. voice I have for you is Cartman. It's always been Cartman, and you the voice you have for me is Cartman too. We just we just share that. Just together. Cartman, okay. No, I no. I'm just saying, if you plant trees, don't plant an oak tree in your yard if you don't like doing yard work. Maple trees, the leaves are easy. What if you inherit some property from from a deceased relative and it has an oak tree in it? Well, that'd be my mom's Deal property. With it. Deal with it. That's and appreciate this magnificent thing you have in front of you. Yeah, I'm not saying cut down an oak tree just because you don't want to do yard work. Just be be prepared to do yard work if you have an oak. Yeah, but and anyway, be happy about it. So, but that's your all-time favorite tree is an apple tree in the backyard? That Well, you said, you asked me what my all-time favorite tree was, and it's that tree. That particular one. That one. That one. I love that tree. I think that tree is fantastic. I like, I, where I work, we have these dawn redwoods, and they're actually living fossils. Well, those, are, they, those are amazing. They're, redwoods are incredible. They're living fossils, though. They're, they're untouched. They're from the time of the dinosaurs. Same as like the ginkgo tree. The ginkgo is yeah. untouched still. And they do look unusual. They don't look like regular trees when you... There's something different about them. They're dinosaurs. Yeah. They look like dinosaur trees. So yeah, yeah. one day I'll have to point them out to you when we go past my work. But uh-huh. we have three of them, and they'll continue to grow and get massive and probably take over the... They'll Earth, be at some point. Hopefully. Um, but they're not commonly found in Michigan. I think they were planted there at some point in like the 60s. But anyway... So who do we talk to? Well, actually, no. I, I do you want to say his name? Yeah, because I'm terrible. I'm a horrible person, and I it, tonight we talked to David George Haskell. There you go. Did I get it right? Yeah. Sorry, David. I'm I'm a terrible. person. I don't know. Person. Throughout the show, I was I I gave Scott the tongue lashing at the end because he was like Mr. Haskell. Mr. I, I don't know. I, yeah, yeah. I'm terrible. I'm, I'm, I'm the worst. Anyway, David's super cool guy. Oh, my God. Uh, he's this a, is so cool. He's a British-born American biologist, author, and professor of biology at Sewanee. Did I say that right? 
the University of the yeah. South in Suwannee, Tennessee. Suwannee, Suwannee. Suwannee. There we go. I knew I was saying it wrong. In well, goddammit, why don't you pronounce the word even. properly? Now we're even. We're even. Right. So in addition to scientific papers, he has written essays, poems, op-eds, and the book The Forest Unseen, and also the book The Songs of Trees, which, which is, yeah. I both perused today and absolutely loved. Yeah. Um, the Forest Unseen was winner of the 2013 National Academy's Communication Award for Best Book, and it was actually a finalist for the 2013 Pulitzer Prize in general nonfiction. Dude. That's huge. That is huge. In the book world, huge. Huge. And then there was a ton of other things it was nominated for. Yeah, yeah. The second book was published in April 2017. That's The Song of Trees. Yeah. And um, it won the 2018 John Burroughs Medal for Distinguished Natural History Writing. And Public Radio International Science Friday, which I love that show, named The Songs of Trees one of the best science books of 2017. So Haskell received his BA in zoology from the University of Oxford and his PhD in evolutionary biology from Cornell University. In 2009, he was named the Carnegie Case Professor of the Year in Tennessee, and he was also awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship by the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation in 2014. He's done it all. Mr. Haskell. Enjoy. Did I do it right? You did it right. Did I do it right? Heavy hitter. Yep. Man, this just prepare to have your mind blown. Please, please enjoy our conversation with David George Haskell. Haskell, thank you again for taking some time to come talk to us. It really means a lot. Um, we know you're very busy. <laughs> so oh, you're here. welcome. It's, a, it's yeah. a pleasure to be with you. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, yes, sir. Now, I'm going to jump into this thing a little. I'm, I'm going to throw us into the weeds, hopefully not too bad. <laughs> but uh, I mean, the one Go thing, um, just in some prep for this show, I was watching some of your talks, your, you know, like your TED Talk, for example. Um, and the idea that really struck me and it's an idea, I guess it's something I've been identifying with uh, lately, is this idea, I mean, and like, for example, you know, getting into the, the topics we're going to be talking about tonight, you, you take a leaf, right? And <laughs> you dissect the leaf verbally more than I've ever seen anybody do that, right? Which is a compliment. <laughs> it really oh, is. Thank you. Um, and you break it down, you know, down to a simple idea that, you know, this isn't just some individual leaf. This is, you know, the buildup of, you know, let's say possibly millions of years of evolution. Um, and without its bacteria, without all the things that it's made up of uh, that we discover once we break it down or like the Petri dish example that you used, um, it, it once you it loses those elements it no longer can function. It basically dies, right? Um, that goes, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, exactly. And, you know, I chose a leaf for that example because it seems so ordinary and we think we we understand what it is, right? It's, it's this single object. It comes from a single individual tree like a sugar maple or a white oak or a white pine. Yeah. And we think we understand it, but in fact, our understanding and even the diagrams in, in the textbooks that are still used in colleges and high schools actually don't get the, the nature of the leaf, or they only get a small portion of it. Is the leaf isn't an individual. It's this incredibly dynamic community of hundreds of different species. Our eyes don't see them because we can't, without the help of genetics and microbiology, we can't see all those little creatures in and yeah. on the leaf, but they're there. Yeah. And that's the amazing thing that's happening in biology now is we're, we're starting to see, oh, that, that individuality is really an illusion, even in, in the most ordinary things like a leaf growing on a suburban branch, a branch of a suburban tree or, or out on, the, on the city street. Yeah. I mean, the thing that strikes me, you know, the world we live in, 
and these are the things I think about when I'm presented with these ideas. You know, and you take a leaf, most people just see it as a leaf, like we've said, right? It's 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 this it's a leaf. It's just one little leaf on a tree that don't really mean much to me. And this is what I think most people's thought processes are. It don't mean much to me. It's just a leaf on a tree. Um, and people just, you know, they simplify it that way. And they don't really appreciate the idea of what, what you're presenting and what we just kind of talked about briefly here is this idea of millions of years of evolution to come to this point for this thing to do what it does and be made up of what it is now to function and have the function that it has now in the world we're in. I don't think people really appreciate that now. I mean, maybe, you know, I'm not trying to be negative, but it just seems like people don't look at it for where it is. They, well, they just see it as just a leaf. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And in, in our senses, our human senses are, are mostly tuned as they should be, you know, to other species, I mean, excuse me, to other people, right? So the people in our family, the people we work with, the people we're in the grocery store with, and so on. We're highly attuned to those subtleties and details, partly because we don't need to really be able to read or listen to plants anymore or even non-human animals because our food comes from the grocery store for most people. Uh, most people don't make their own house by picking the right kind of wood, the right kind of tree to, to turn into lumber and, and so on. We, we get all of that at the store. And yet we have the capacity as humans, and this is what our ancestors did for hundreds of thousands of years, yeah. is be highly tuned in to the many complexities of the lives of these other species. So it's, you know, it's really just a product of the fact that our lives have changed so much, but the reality around us hasn't changed. The leaves are just as amazing and as complicated and, frankly, as important now as they ever were. In fact, I'd argue trees and forests and leaves are more important now because they're the things that are going to buffer us from some of our worst behaviors uh, in, the, in the coming decades. Um, so they're still important, but they kind of fall off the radar screen. Yeah, they do. Um, and I think, yeah, it's just, it's just that simplification. Automation, This and I've been talking a lot about this, it's because it's something I think we as humans, we're, we're, we're being exposed to the idea of automation more and more every day um, in our technology, in our lives. And automation, it applies to, like you just said, something things like the grocery store. I mean, yeah, we're not attuned to the earth anymore where, yeah, if you're hungry, you have to go out and hunt food <laughs> or you have to grow it. Right. You have to go and grow yeah. something and you have to you have to learn a trade. You really have that is a trade in its own right. You'd have to spend years getting good at that, um, hopefully. And then you pass that down generation to generation, which is what, you know, our species is, it did at one time is we passed down these trades from generation to generation. And that's how you survived. But, yeah, everything now, it really is automated. Our food. Um, especially our, our, like you said, the house, right? Yeah. At one time you had to understand some type of architecture as a, as just a regular everyday Joe, right? Um, whereas now you go get a job at a company and you work a number of years to save money up, hopefully. And then you just buy, <laughs> you may have it built too, but it's very, it's a very automated process. You follow what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. And it's very specialized. So there are people, you know, some of my friends work, as farmers, others work as, as contractors and so on, others are teachers and so on, and everyone has that particular trade, and, and that's wonderful. We learn, say, for example, if you're working as someone who builds houses, you understand the material properties of wood yeah. and of stone and of concrete and so on. But out sort of in the general population, most people don't get that, and because of your specialization, you probably aren't that good at listening to plants or finding your way in the woods if, if you're if you're trying to hunt some food yeah. or dealing with young people. The way. So we've become extremely specialized and we gain things through that. But often what we lose is the ability to listen to things outside of our zone of expertise. And I think there are practical reasons we might want to reclaim some of that. But it's also, for me, it's just an aesthetic thing. It's so cool and amazing to be able to walk down a city street and know something of the stories of the trees along the street or of the stones that my feet are resting on, each one of which came from some different place, some, a quarry somewhere, and it has its own geologic deep story. That, 
that sort of information enriches my life, even if I don't immediately put it to practical use. Yeah, I mean, I know myself, it's something that I'm finding in life now, just that very idea. The more I, as I do work in technology myself, and the more I'm immersed with technology, the more I just want to stand on a hill and look at the sun, <laughs> right? I mean, that's the more I want to do that with myself. I just want to go out somewhere and, and as I would refer to, and I'm sure you would too, just become one with the earth in a certain way, at least as yep. much as I could, right? Well, and and like that's your, I would say that's your right and your inheritance as a living being on this planet is to enjoy the sensory pleasures of being in this world. It doesn't mean we have to completely get rid of technology, but it does mean that we need to have a practice of looking at the sun, looking at the, the clouds, enjoying the smell of a park or of a spring morning, listening to the bird song in our neighborhood. Those are things that were bequeathed to us by the earth and by our ancestors, our human ancestors, and we should, we're owed the ability to enjoy them. Well, and one of the th when we were just talking about how trees have, you walk past a tree and there's a story, you know, how long has that yeah. tree been there? There are so many trees I walk by and you see like, you're like, oh my God, that tree's so old. How many people have walked in front of that? And, and when the one I'm thinking of is in Gettysburg. Gettysburg has a number of trees yeah. in their downtown area where they call them the Lincoln, I forget what kind of tree it was, but they're like at, you know, during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln walked in front of this tree and yeah. they're massive. Yeah. And you just want to go up to it for reasons unknown to me and just touch it. Mm -hmm. Like, and I, I don't know, it, like you think about, you know, hippies or whatever called tree huggers and stuff, but you really do want to do that. I don't know why, but you just seem to feel something or you feel that history going through you. Well, you're saying that, yeah, and, it's, your feet, your, your, it's history. Well, and when I was going through years. a lot of um, David's videos and, and, and books today, uh, doing research and stalking him on the internet, <laughs> I, I came across all these little bits and one of them was about the memory of trees. And mm -hmm. and I thought it was cool that I found a little movie that you had helped write um, that was based off, uh, I think, one of your stories called The Atomic Tree in yeah, um, your book. Exactly. And and it was about a tree that was that survived Hiroshima and it was Whoa. 400 years old. Yeah, and I don't yeah. know if, David, if you can uh, explain that to listeners who maybe haven't seen yeah, that. It was absolutely. so cool. So the... Um the film is that you can watch it. It's called The Atomic Tree. Uh, you can watch it online and on the laptop. But it, you know, for people who've got VR capability, you can also watch it in virtual reality. So it's this thing you put the headset oh, you on and you're there in 3D with surround sound and so on. And the uh, uh, two directors that I worked with, Adam Lofton and Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, did a marvelous job of taking the story of this tree that I, that I discussed in my book, The Songs of Trees, and and turning it into a virtual reality experience. And the thing with this tree is it's at least 400 years old. It's a pine tree. It germinated probably on an island off the coast of Japan, although we don't know exactly which island, which, which mountainside it came from, but there's a good chance it came from, from an island that's now regarded as a sacred island, Miyajima. 400 years ago, it was taken as a seedling and then turned into a bonsai tree. So the person who gathered it brought it home and clipped some of the roots and the, the stem and so on. And essentially, from that period moment on, every day for 400 years, people have been tending to that tree, trimming it, giving enough water in the summertime and so on. And for six generations in Japan, it was the same family whose lives were connected with this tree. These were a family of, of bonsai masters who passed on from one generation to another a whole collection of trees, including this, this ancient one. The tree was in Hiroshima in, in the 1940s. Um, then uh, the American bomb dropped. And, of course, the entire center part of Hiroshima was completely um, vaporized, liquidated. This tree was on the outskirts, and it was behind a wall. So the blast from the bomb actually went over the wall, took out all the windows of the house, but the tree itself wasn't, wasn't wiped out. And then for several more decades, the tree was tended by this, the family, the Yamaki family in Hiroshima. And in 1976, the tree was one of uh, a large group of trees that were given by the people of Japan to the people of the United States as a gesture of goodwill and of peace. 
on the American Bicentennial in 1976. And the tree has lived in Washington, D.C. at the National Arboretum, which is an amazing place. They have the most incredible bonsai collection there uh, and has lived there ever since. And you can go, you know, when the, when the museum is open, you can go and hang out with this tree. Um, and you, you talked about the memories of the trees in Gettysburg. Yeah. The thing yeah. that is amazing to me about trees is that those memories aren't metaphors. Uh, they're actually in the tree every year. And during the growing season, almost every single day, the tree is, of course, adding more wood. And those memories are contained within the tree, layer by layer by layer. So there's a particular layer in the center of this bonsai tree that's for, literally the wood is 400 years old. Then there's another layer that is 399 years old and so on. There's one that records the, the air from during the atomic blast. And then this year, there's the, the most outermost layer. So memories are literally held within the wood of trees. And I think that's part of what we understand intuitively when we're near an old tree that's been through a lot of history. We want some kind of physical connections that we want to suck that up into our own senses a little bit to ground us and to root us is like, here's some history that's important to me. I want to understand it better. And here's another being, a living being, a tree. You know, it doesn't speak the same language as me. And so it's a little hard to make a connection there. But still, we feel this bond and this need to, to have some, um, some connection, even some conversation. Yeah. And this, this particular uh, bonsai tree that lives in Washington, D.C. now is just an, an extraordinary example of that. I, that 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 story that that you cannot convince me any other way that that is not a living being that right. you know no different than than we are i mean i know that we have the ability to communicate and make phones and all kinds of cool stuff right and i know that's this idea and i'm talking very high level here but i think that's what i i guess we as humans um that's what makes we that we think that's what gives us the edge Right. Is that we we can, can communicate and we have all these emotions and we have all this stuff and we're we're a higher being. But you can't convince me that. A tree that we're talking about here, the atomic tree that has had more experiences than most people will ever, ever experience in their short lives. <laughs> right. Is yep. not. On the same level as us, just because we can't have a conversation about a Facebook post we saw <laughs> with it, right? Mm -hmm. Don't make it any less than us. That's just my yeah. that's my opinion. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I think and I think we can say that in a way that that honors the amazing things that humans do. You know, we're very we're very smart. We have all this technology. We also make really beautiful things like human music, human musical instruments. Yeah. We can connect to, to one another in, in deeply emotional ways, and, and that's wonderful. And these other beings, the trees, of which there are thousands of species, it's hard to sort of lump them all together. You know, they're not good at those things, but they're good at other stuff like building soil, retaining the memories of a place, helping regulate the, the uh, rainfall and temperatures around the world. And, and those forests are 400 million years old. Those are forests date back that far. Yeah. Our own yeah. species is, I mean, it depends on how you count it, but it's just... You know, in its in our modern form, maybe hundred, two hundred thousand years old, and so so these are the elders in a way that are really different from us, and we have to honor their differences without dissing our own yeah. abilities. <laughs> but I, I would say that we're you know we're in a way we're like brothers and sisters or cousins, if you like, and it's like not the one's better than the other; it's just we're different from one another, and that's cool. And in fact, we need each other. We can't do this alone. Oh. Can I present can I, an idea to you uh, concerning, you mentioned music, which is kind of a nerd, one of my nerd things that I do, right? And you, you mentioned that we as people, we make music. And violins, for example, mm -hmm. I mean, what are they made out of? And I mean, maybe you've already been presented this idea, and if, if you have, I mean, I'm sorry, but it's just something that was popping in my head here. I mean, violins, for example, they, they're made of wood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And we know where wood comes from at this point. Um, yep. Is that, to me, it's, that could be a, a method of communication right there without us even knowing it. 
Um, yeah, exactly. You know, and that's I'm, right now I'm working on a book about sound and, and violins are actually uh, making an appearance there and invest okay. the spruce and, and the maple wood. And then when I go and hear a, an orchestra or a, you know, a rock band, or, and it doesn't matter what kind of music, there is a lot of wood on stage. Yes. What we're hearing is the second song of the forest. The first song, if you like, are the songs that the trees make in the wind when they're standing there in the woods and there are the frogs and the insects and the birds all around them. That's the first song. Then if they're harvested responsibly and they go to make a beautiful thing like a, a guitar or a violin, then the, the physical structure of that wood sings out again to the world and so the tree in a way gets its uh, second life it gets a, an afterlife if you like yeah if and, and i think that's one reason why it's important to respect wood products i think wood products are amazing and that they're very sustainable and so on but of course in our society now we have a lot of disposable stuff where we just don't respect this amazing product you know we throw it away or we, or we build things that aren't built to last and to me that seems like a uh a sad thing and it doesn't fully honor these amazing beings whereas say a violin or, or a well-made guitar is made out of wood that is potentially going to last for hundreds of years my partner is actually is a violinist um, her violin is from the 19th century and and she talks about how this you know this guitar this violin is much older than any living human being on on the planet now by a long shot and yet it's still making music. It sounds just as amazing as it did, maybe even more amazing than the day it was made. Yeah. And so that's, that, that's that all that went through my mind when, when that was brought up. I mean, yeah, guitars are a great example, too. I mean, and, they, and certain guitars, different woods, they sound different. It's a different mm -hmm. song that wood sings. It's, it's its own individual when it comes to that, I guess. I mean, and there's a million, my mind is just spinning out into a million different ways when it comes to this, because this is just the stuff that I like. Um, but this is this idea of communication that trees communicate and we've kind of covered, we've talked about a few of these things. Um, and I guess, you know, one method, like we already said is, is music. Um, but I guess the question I may have is, um, are there any other ways that we can converse with, with trees? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah great question. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, the first thing I'd say about that is to realize that trees are mostly talking to each other, right. In various chemical languages. And then they're talking to the, fungi and the and the bacteria and to some extent the, the animals down in the soil and in their leaves and so trees are very much extremely conversational with one another not usually in a sonic way but using uh, a chemical language where messages are exchanged back and forth among trees and between trees and these other creatures there are ways though that humans can tap into that in my book what i the thing I tried to do in, in this book, The Songs of Trees, was go to about a dozen individual trees in different parts of the world and sit with them and list, try and listen to their stories. And by that, I mean actually literally listen to the sound of the trees. So for example, the sound of a dry wind blowing through the olive trees around Jerusalem tells us a lot about how people have thrived or failed to thrive in that region by working in a very arid environment with this particular tree. And the tree is the link between the people and the soil because the olive tree is the most productive agricultural crop in those, those dry, arid hills. And that's what civilizations have been based on for 8,000 years around the Mediterranean, are people working closely with trees. And you can hear the particular form of the tree and it's sort of slightly leathery leaves the way the wind moves through it on a, on a hot afternoon, you can, you can feel the drought in that. And in that story is, is a lot of uh, insight, I think, into archaeology and the politics of the region. The other way, sticking with the olive tree, is just one example of listening to a tree and, and communicating with it is to talk to people whose lives are really closely connected. So the olive trees, it's the farmers who go out year by year tending their olive trees, whether they're in ancient groves or in very new modern plantations, two different ways of growing olives, and who really understand the needs of the tree and the way the tree is connected to the soil and the land. So those are people who, who have 
listened to and understood the tree and, and can communicate some of that. One of another way, oh, I, I would have just one more thing. <laughs> yeah, please, please. Is, is to listen to other species in there, particularly the birds and the insects, because they got a lot to say about them. Oh, for sure. Uh, when we were talking about communities and the people that work with certain trees and around them, I had read the story in your um, your latest book about the sabo tree. And those yep. are so cool. These massive trees in the rainforest with these massive buttress roots that look like something out of like a, I don't know, a fantasy movie or Game of Thrones or something. Like they just have this whimsical, um, otherworldly look to them. And I had no idea that they grew way above the canopy. They're just massive. Yep. But how part of that i forget what the tribe's name was that was in the story i didn't write that down but how that community used those trees and one of the ways i thought was really interesting was if a kid or someone got lost in the woods they could go bang on one of these trees roots and it would like sort of sonically go through the woods and they could like follow locate, that they could locate somebody yeah oh wow yeah. far out yeah, and that's, you know, these trees, as you said, the trees have these um, huge, uh, they're almost like big plates coming out of the side of them. They're big flat sheets of wood and, and they're called buttress roots. And these roots, the job is to ho help hold the tree up. But they act as these incredible subwoofers. If you pound on that thing, you get this incredibly low frequency sound. And low frequencies travel really well through the forest, whereas high frequencies really, they get attenuated very quickly. So you can boom, boom, you can make these, <clears throat> these very uh, low tones. And when, when the parents hear that, they're like, okay, we need to go and find those kids. And, and the, the, the people that I wrote about are the Warani, okay, who've yeah. lived in the Amazon for, for thousands of years um, in close relationship with the forest. And of course, their whole livelihood and life depends on knowing where all these different trees are. So they've got a, a map, presumably in their heads, of where the trees are. And that tree is, is not just good for sending sonic signals through the woods. It's also this, in, their, in their creation story is the tree of life. Because this is a tree that gathers so many animals and plants in its branches frogs that live up there and birds and nine different species of monkey and that the tree is so big that other trees grow on it <laughs> and then other trees grow on those so you climb up into the canopy and it's you like you're in this parallel universe there's a whole other forest up there and so the, the, this tree is oh. is both in the story but also quite literally is the tree of life uh, and the tree this particular species is interesting because it is found actually in tropical forests all around the world, not just in South America, but in Africa and Asia. And it takes on particular significances in different cultures. But it's always the big giant. And people people are very much drawn to it for its ecological importance. And Now, we talked about... Well, you broke up a little bit. I'm sorry. What was that, Mr. Haskell? Oh, sorry, I was saying it's, it's, it's both an ecological hub in the forest, but also for people it becomes an incredibly important symbol of this big, stable source of life in, in the forest. And you know, in Western culture, we have our own version, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Buddhism, there's a Bodhi tree. The Buddha was enlightened under a tree. Trees keep showing up in all these different stories about meaning and origins. Now, as far as... The, the communication aspect we were talking about here. Um, we found ways we can communicate with them. Uh, we discussed that. I mean, as far you said that there's a lot of chatter. <laughs> I'll use that term right now. You said there's a lot of chatter, though, uh, between trees, like, you know, other trees with, with insects, with other animals. I'm curious, and I don't even know if you can answer this or not, but... Uh, what is it that they're talking about? I mean, I yeah. mean, what, 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 what is this chatter that, that that they're doing? Yeah, well, mostly we do not know. There are all sorts of scientists doing amazing work uncovering these stories. One of the things, <clears throat> one of the first things that we discovered for uh, above ground communication between trees is that they're talking to one another about which insects are attacking them, and the way that works is 
let's say I'm a tree that has a whole load of beetles that start chewing on my leaves or eating into my bark, I'm going to release a particular chemical into the air. Uh, and that chemical goes to the neighboring trees. And those neighboring trees, even if they don't have any insects on them, are going to start making defensive chemicals in their own leaves, in their own bark to prepare for the attack of the insects that have arrived on me. So yeah. through when you smell a tree, for example, and we can smell some of these molecules, uh, and some of them are used in human perfumes as well. They, they kind of have a pleasant woodsy um, herbal smell to them. So when you smell a tree, you're smelling the, the conversations that they're having with one another. One really cool uh, recent finding is that the trees um, have a particular signature of chemicals in their body. For example, a pine tree smells really different than a maple tree. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out the signals work best when they go to a tree of a similar kind. So they're kind of talking within their clan, within their language, if you like, the same way that when I hear someone talking in a language that I don't understand, it's like, okay, I know there's communication going on. I can get a little bit of snippets of it. But when someone speaks to me in English or some other language that I know, like, okay, I get that. And trees are doing similar things, just not using ears and voice boxes, but using particular blends of chemicals. And one of the things that I find really amazing is to go around and actually sniff trees. If you think tree huggers are crazy, <laughs> you like tree sniffing. Uh, and particularly in the West with the ponderosa pine trees, um, but also, you know, in, in East with all the, especially in the springtime, the maple trees have like distinctive odors and so on. It's really cool to say that these species are, smell different and each individual, like with the pine trees, some of them smell a little bit sweet like vanilla. Others, it's more kind of a bourbon, dark, um, not quite alcoholic, but sort of a, a layer of darkness in, in their aroma. Often the older trees or the trees that have been attacked by, by insects deer and so forth. So the trees are communicating about insects through chemicals flowing from one tree to another. Below ground, the trees are talking to fungi and bacteria that then transmit the message to other trees. And some of that, you know, they're talking about nutrients and pathogens and so on. But mostly, we've discovered that there's communication happening, that there are connections, and that if you sever those connections, the trees really suffer. But the content of all those messages is like we still haven't uh, decoded that. We need some people like the uh, uh, Second World War Enigma team who decoded the uh, uh, Nazi signals and helped win the war for the Allies. We need the same thing for trees. We need some really uh, smart decoders of chemical messages to tell us what the trees are saying to one another. One thing b before we move on. You know, you were talking about how the tree, you know, how trees communicate with one another, um, you know, by warning each other. I mean, and I was thinking about one like term like cross pollination. I guess that would be a, a method of communication also as far as trees are concerned. They do cross pollinate with each other, correct? Absolutely. And our noses suffer for that in the spring, right? So all the, all yeah. the tree pollen in the air uh it's basically genetic information flowing from one tree to another. Um, and it's, it's not at all indiscriminate. It turns out when that pollen lands on the flower of another tree, that flower has a pretty highly selective, uh, you know, only one pollen grain is going to be allowed to, to fertilize the, the egg inside the flower. And there's a huge degree of selectivity there. And, so there's, and again, that's mediated through, through chemicals, through little receptors that are on the outside of the cells whether they recognize each other, whether they're the same species, whether the, the pollen grain can travel fast enough within the flower because when it lands, it starts growing this little tube. Um, all of those things are ways that through time, trees interweave their DNA with one another um, in a way that, that is transferring information from and creating new combinations. That leads us into, and we've made, we've, I think we touched on this a little bit, but I want to dive in if we can. Is this idea, uh, you know, the, the what you would refer to as the illusion of individuality? Um, when I was listening to some of your talks today, um, 
the first the, the, what kept coming into my mind as far as us as humans, and I mean, I'm not trying to turn this into like let, let's like down the human humans because I think we uh, we as humans do some pretty cool stuff also. We do a lot yep, of bad stuff, yep. but we do some really amazing stuff also. Um, but the first the one idea that kept kind of cycling through my head when I was listening to you talk about this idea, the illusion of individuality is I'm like, you know, humans really, we, we've been doing this for, for thousands of years is trying to put ourselves at the center of things. Like we are the center of all this. We, as I said a few minutes ago, we are the higher, we are the higher species here. So we're the center of it. It all emanates from us, right? That's not, I don't believe that. <laughs> I don't think it's true. Um, in your book, the songs of trees, um, we, we you know we've already and we've already talked to side about the idea for, uh, that you know this is a network the you know trees <laughs> they are part of a network right um which is exactly sim- Go ahead. that's the i mean i think you put your finger on it there is that we we have been told and we seem to live in a world where the individual is the fundamental unit of life yeah but in fact interrelationship and interconnection networked connection is the property of life that persists through time and that turns out to be more fundamental than individuality. Individual, you know, I look at my own body, my skin ends and the air begins at a certain point. I'm clearly an, an individual at a certain level. But another level, I'm not. Because if, if you took away all the bacteria on my skin and in my gut, I'd be very sick. I rely on that community of other beings on and in me for us mm-hmm. to work together to make this happen. Look at the contents of my head. Almost all of that came from other people, from things I heard from my family, my friends, from teachers, from reading, from watching movies and so on. It's all a big network that is temporarily locked up in my body and in my head. But that's just a temporary manifestation of these much bigger, more permanent things, which are the ever-shifting networks and communities of life. Yeah, and I mean, it, it is this. It is this buildup, like we were talking. I mean, it's it it's an amalgamation of, of a lot. And I think this goes back to what we were talking about with the leaf. I have, I, I and I was thinking about this earlier too. Um, I think I think as people, again, putting ourselves at the center of things, and I'm not here to preach either, but I think we neglect we neglect the bodies that we have. I think as people, we take we take our bodies for granted. They're you know self destruction, um, you know alcohol abuse, drug abuse, smoking, um, and I and I look at the body, and I mean I guess it's just age. I'm looking at things differently the older I get, and I keep like the mind, the brain, for example, uh, how complex this thing is, how this how complex this machine is that's made up. Again, it's an it's an amalgamation of. I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know this stuff, but millions of things I think in my, in my mind, I would say. Um, and I think people take that for granted also. No, I do. I do think that, I mean, partly it's, there's nothing wrong with, with being a little bit self-centered, right. To look after yourself and to, um, make sure that you're planning for the future and all the rest, but, but to realize and have some gratitude for the fact that this temporary, not of relationships that I call me mm-hmm. isn't was in fact given to me through this much bigger set of processes. And you can think of them as concentric circles, the most obvious ones and the ones that we're most aware of in our, in our lives for most of us are close family or friends or colleagues yeah. and then work our way out in the human community of life. Of course, the people who drove the trucks, who brought the food that I ate uh, for dinner this evening, the people who, um, uh, keeping the lights on in my house and so on. You know, those are folks that I'm directly connected to every day. And then on out through to people living on the other side of the world who I'm only very distantly connected to, but still actually literally still connected to. But I, mean, I think this is a key thing. We need to have that same notion of circles of connection and relationship to other species, most of which we really don't think about, like the 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 trees that, that produce the oxygen at the trees and also the oceans that produce the oxygen that we breathe, the living soil that gave us food, the hundreds of millions of years of evolution that produced the amazing diversity of life on this planet, of which we're one part. All of those things, to me, are about two things. They're about kinship. is like I actually belong to this big family tree of life. And then community. 
which is like every single breath I take, every idea in my head, every single bite of food connects me to tens of thousands of other beings. As I, I can't be too self-centered when I'm thinking about that kind of stuff. And I think it entails a certain level of gratitude and realizing, oh, maybe I need to honor those connections and be a better member of the community. And what that means for me is going to be really different than from other people. You know, I've got a particular situation with my family, a particular way of eating. For someone in a different culture, in a different context, it's going to be different. But the question is the same. The answer might be different. The question is, how can I be a good member of this community? Yes, and that's one idea that I I saw I've seen you propose is this idea that you know the way we look at things on this planet now is that nature, and I say the term nature as in like okay the forest, <laughs> it's it's uh-huh. where it's where the houses and and the the department stores are not right. We have the city and we have nature a lot, and I think a lot of people just that's how they compartmentalize those two uh-huh. things, and to a lot of people I think they're just too separate entities that you know when we have to save nature and they look at it as this separate thing yeah (laughs) whereas your idea is look we're all a part i mean and to sum it up really is we're all a part of everything we're all related i mean we're related to the trees Mm-hmm. Us, us bipedal people walking around here, we're related to the trees. We're related to the for, the dirt. We're related to everything around us. We're all, as you said, a member of this giant community. Yeah. And, you know, I would say the city is as much part of nature as the, you know, wilderness area out in the mountains. And why is that? Well, who built the city? It was people working, you know, with some help from some other creatures like the trees that grew the wood that is holding up a good number of cities and the, uh, the living ecosystems that were torn apart to, to dredge up sand and so on to make concrete. Um, the, the city was, is a product of, of one particularly clever and industrious animal, and that's us. I don't think that there's a real strong division between the city and nature. Of course, the sensory experience of being on a street corner in New York compared to being out in the wilderness, like totally different. Yeah. And it's all part of that same community. And what, and what really bothers me saying that in the environmental movement is when people like worship the wilderness areas and really diss the city. And I think we need both. It's like, yeah, we, we don't want to pave over the whole world, but in fact, cities where people gather together in pretty close proximity and make really efficient use of resources are way more sustainable and lots of other ways of living out on, on the land. And so what we need is not the city versus rural or the city versus wilderness. We need to see if all of this is this network. It's like we need each other. How can people in the city honor that and be good neighbors to people in rural areas and to the more than human people out in, in the rest of the world? By more than human, I mean the, the trees and the birds and the insects and the fish. Uh, and then likewise, the people living outside of the city is not regarded as, oh, that's the fallen, despoiled place where there's no nature. It's like, well, no, those people living in the city are way, often way more sustainable. And there's a lot of uh, of life there in the city of many different species. Yeah. So one, and one I, of the trees that taught me the most is, is a, uh, an ordinary street tree on the corner of a street. Uh, in New York, in Manhattan, uh, I returned to it for many, many years, just hung out with this tree and got to know the neighborhood a little bit through the life of this one tree. And it really showed me how people and trees are connected in the city in ways that, that I had no idea about. I think, go ahead, Amy. Well, and I was going to say with that same tree, I, I remember I wrote I wrote down some facts actually about that story that I thought were fascinating because you you mentioned going up to the tree after it rains and touching the bark and then looking at your hand and there's soot and pollution, but it's a good thing that it's absorbing that. And then instead of releasing it in the air that we breathe it in, it's slowly bringing it down to the ground. Um, and then just even well, well, it's going into the sewer system, but that, but I thought, well, I know in the sewer system, the more trees you have in a city, the less, uh, storm water goes in like, well, speed wise. And I learned that from David. (laughs) <laughs> so I was like, that's amazing. And then I, yeah. um, so, and then also I think what was the number that you said when you plant, when you have trees in a, in a, a large city, like New York city, 
how much yeah. like ten million dollars it can save you in air conditioning at, at least yeah so so h ten million is is one number that's pretty well understood for New York. That's the amount of money that's saved in air conditioning costs from having trees on the street. Wow. Now there are some streets that don't have enough trees and and the city is trying to do something about that. But that's a huge saving just to people's pocketbooks, let alone an improvement in the quality of life, right? Because if you're living in a, an apartment and it's 110 degrees outside, it's not a pleasant experience. And so trees produce more healthy cities for us by cleaning the air, by cooling the air, uh, by cleaning and slowing uh, stormwater flows. So every time we take a breath of air in the city, we have the trees to thank cleaning some of the pollution uh, that came out of that, particularly um, in New York where there's still a lot of uh, diesel and there's still a lot of, in the wintertime, some pretty um, unclean ways of burning oil uh, to heat entire apartment buildings, kind of 19th century old burners that need to be replaced. Yeah. And bit by bit they're being upgraded, but still, you know, you look at, you can see the plumes of smoke coming out in the wintertime. The trees, even when they don't have leaves on them, suck up that pollution onto their bark and it sticks on the bark and then washes to ground and into the the, uh, sewer system Um, and that helps our lungs. Now, it's not good. It's impossible to have so many trees to completely clean the air in a city like New York, but it helps, particularly in neighborhoods where you've got a lot of street trees. Yeah. And one of the really neat things that's happened in New York is that they have mapped out where there are neighborhoods with a lot of people who have lung problems like asthma and where there are neighborhoods that don't have many trees. And where those two things overlap, so you've got not many trees and a lot of people struggling with lung issues, they go in and plant up whole blocks with street trees looking to the future so that in 10 years things you know, it's not an immediate solution. The tree has got to grow. Uh, but in 10 years' time or, or and beyond that, they've contributed to helping solve some of, some of that problem. Now, cleaner burning engines and so on also need to be part of the solution. But trees are but one component. I have to say <laughs> that I've never heard someone with such a positive outlook on New York City. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I mean, I'm, I, 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 and I mean that. Uh, and it, it's very interesting to hear that. I mean, I, I've, I've never personally been to New York, but I've been to Baltimore, and I don't want to sound brash, but that's a pretty nasty place. <laughs> I have to say it, as far as the city's concerned, right? Um, I think that's why people have this this stigmatism towards cities, and they have that us-against-them type of idea, like the forest is better than the city, right? Um, it's interesting to hear, hear you present this idea that, you no, know, cities are actually – you know, they're cool because they're, this is where you know they do offer a lot of ideas, community, uh, networking, and these ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I mean, I would ahead. add to that from the, on the human level. If you look at the the the, uh, the size and the and the connectedness of human social networks in the city, so people living in the city compared to to people not living in the city, people living in the city have more people that they're actually connected to. We often think of cities as very lonely places, but in fact, the data shows opposite, that there are more pools and texts and people have more people on their contacts lists and so on in the city. Just from the fact that everyone's crowded together and there's a lot of stuff happening, it's like this intense chemical reaction. And a lot of that is good. There are more per capita, there is more wealth generated, there are more patents, more innovation in cities. Yeah, there's also some of the negative stuff when people get packed together. Like when the flu hits, it's going to go much faster through a city than out in the countryside. Correct. And, I mean, and I guess pers- I have a personal bias here is that I, I grew up in a city and I've lived in rural Tennessee for 25 years as well. So I had the experience of kind of both ends of the spectrum, like really rural in a town of less than a thousand people and then living in, in one of the world's biggest cities. It's like, okay, each place has its own strengths and weaknesses. It's not like one is better than the other, and they each need the other. And some people are going to love one and not be attracted to the other, and that's okay. It, but it doesn't mean that my personal preference is how it has to be for everyone else. 
So really, and particularly, you know, in, in our country right now in the U.S., there, there are so many kind of divisions being made across the political spectrum. I'm not talking about just the left or the right of like, oh, these people against those. It's like, you know what? We need each other. And we, we got to figure out how the same way we got to figure out how to learn in good relationship to trees is like with other people who might be driving us crazy for their like political beliefs or something. I like, you know what? The cities really need rural America and rural America also needs the cities. How are we going to make that happen? And that's, you know, I don't have the answer to that, but I think we need to ask that question more of our leaders. Well, we're, you know, we're, we're divided by, it's just ideas we're divided by, I think. It isn't, and then the politic thing, I know that's like the number one on the list, but I think mm-hmm. there's this conditioning going on now that people are getting where, and we've talked about that before on this show here, is that uh, ideas, you know, I think people, well, they, they call it, uh, you know, uh, well, it's just it's just an, it's it's personality type politics, I guess. I hate to bring politics back into it, but it's this idea that if you have a certain idea, that defines you as a person. And right. it's not. We both know, without even knowing each other that well, that that that's just simply not true. A person's immensely complex. Their their thoughts are immensely complex. And one thing that they say they they may like that you don't like in my opinion doesn't define them as a person in any way whatsoever there's a lot more things to people than that Uh, and that's where i think this division comes from though from people it's just that is that we're hyper focusing in on certain and i think that's where it is it's a it's a hot spot for some people i'll openly admit that i'm i've got i've become very sensitive about animals and stuff like that when i hear about an animal being abused i I immediately kind of go on this defensive thing because it's it's a hot mm-hmm. topic for me. Some people, yep. sure, I'm sure it isn't that much for them. Uh, but I think that's where these ideas, with the you know, going back to this idea of community, um, that's where I think you know. And who am I? I don't have the answers either. But it seems like we as people need to really kind of calm down on that idea. <laughs> I don't know any other way to really present that. It's just can we just chill out a little bit there and, and quit throwing daggers at people because they have a different idea than you? Yeah. You know, and, and I was from, I mentioned earlier that forests have been around for like 400 million years and they've done that only because they've been able to figure out a way to work with other beings. So, so trees can only thrive if they're working well with the fungi under, underneath the ground and with bacteria, and with birds for dispersal of their fruits and so on. So this idea of, of cooperation across difference, it, you know, it sounds like this idealistic uh, sort of notion, but in fact, it's like that's how evolution works. It's like any creature that tries to go out alone and feel like I've got all the answers and um, I don't need the help of any other being is like that, that species is now extinct. The ones that are around and have succeeded, the great big forests, the coral reefs and the amazingly productive parts of the ocean and the prairies and so on. They work because of these tight networks of, of interaction. And there is a hell of a lot of uh, predation and parasitism and competition in those ecosystems. But the way creatures find their way through that struggle is through deeper cooperation, not through separation. Yeah, you just said the word. You just yeah, said the word I was saying. We need to learn from that. Well, no, that's the word I was thinking of that, cooperation cooperation mm-hmm. I, i'll work with you um if an animal flies if i'm a tree which is hilarious thought um and, and an animal flies towards me and wants to work with me on something i guess it's just the, the way i picture it is just that uh i'll get away no i don't like you you mm-hmm. you're yellow i don't like yellow things get away from me and it, that's not cooperation i know it's a very dumbed down idea on this this whole thought process but to me though th- those are the problems we have is just this knee-jerk no 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 leave me alone leave me alone and i think this whole thing taking it like you said amber taking a cue from the trees and and the forest and and the and the earth itself amber go ahead I wanted to ask before before we let David go, yeah, I wanted yeah. to ask him about his new book that's coming out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you said it, it involves sound. So I'm mm-hmm. wondering what, is this just, is this book focusing on trees still or is it a bigger picture when it comes to sound? Like what what's your focus on this one? 
Yeah, so, so this book won't be out for another uh, year or so, but I'm, I'm just in the early stages of, of writing it. But it, it's really focused on sound in the big sense. Like, how did the sounds of the world get to be so diverse? Like, I mean, you think about it, we sound really different from the birds in the tree, and the birds here sound different from the ones in South America, and the insects are different. And that, it's like, this. think of every other planet in the known universe. None of them are even close to Earth as being so incredibly diverse in, in their sounds. And human music is part of that. We're, we're the species that invented musical instruments. We're making lots of different diverse sounds. So part of the book is, is looking at some cool examples of that and asking how did the world get to be such a crazy sonic place and then looking at some points where, okay, this, this, we're in a time of extinction and of loss of forests and there's a lot of noise pollution in the oceans. What can we do about that to preserve this incredible diversity of, of sound around the world and to, to stop the diminishing? So it's kind of a celebration of the music of the earth, if you like, and, and then looking at some ways that people are doing interesting work to try and understand that and to help keep it going into, into the future and seeing where people fit into this. Because I really think human music, we need to think of human music as part of this much larger set of, of song and of sound in the world rather than a, a separate thing. Oh, human music is totally different. Whereas, yeah, in some ways it is. Musical instruments are somewhat different, but they're all rooted on the same need of animals to, to vocalize and to communicate one. Are you, oh, that sounds so cool. Are you familiar with Gordon Hempton? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. He's an amazing sound recorder. Okay, because yeah. you were saying this, and I'm like, oh, God, I'm, I'm thinking of like Gordon Hempton and sound ecology. And, yeah. and, and for people out there listening that don't know who Gordon Hempton is, he kind of, I know one of the, at least when, what I've listened to is he focuses on the last quiet places on earth. These places yep. where there's uh, like, I'll buy property there now. Uh, well, that, well, I think what the number one is, I think in the Olympic rainforest, a national park out. Yeah. Yeah. And like, these, these, has no a, option. He has a great book called, uh, I think it's called one square inch of silence. Yeah. And yeah. He, he also markets uh, CDs and things. He's an amazing listener to the world. And he's really brought to a lot of people's attention, the problems of sound pollution. Yeah, it's uh, maybe it's oh, so I'm so excited. That's so cool. Neat. Yay, David. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Oh, it's, it's great to be with you both. Ghostly talk. <laughs> 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 <laughs>